You ready? Uh, you're on. <laughs> I'm not so excited. fully aware that uh, anything that gets said apart from you is not worth listening to. So we just pray, Father, that the word would come alive, that all things that are pleasing to you would be said and things that are not honoring to you would be not said and quickly forgotten if they are. So we pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up because, Lord, it's all about you and not about us. And we ask you that we might be fully aware of that and give glory to your name. Jesus, we thank you. Amen. If I can remember the Latin phrase, is it what? Ex tenebris lux, out of darkness, light. And that's what is coming. I don't know how quickly, but it's coming. A few weeks ago, um, we took a quick view through the first five chapters of Joshua. And we're going to take an even quicker view through a... I started to say chapters 6 through 24 just to get a reaction, but... Um, <laughs> just the next couple of chapters of Joshua. Uh, You know, there's an apocryphal book called The Wisdom of Solomon. And, of course, the apocrypha is... um, There are books that that lend a lot to Scripture, but they're not considered canon by the Protestant church. Um, But, again, a lot of them are real profitable for reading. They're included in the Catholic Bible but not in the Protestant Bible. But anyway, in the apocryphal book of the Wisdom of Solomon, it says that God chose to annihilate the Canaanites little by little rather than all at once to give them opportunity to repent. That's what God does for all of us. He gives us opportunity continually to repent. And we have to remember that when Joshua and the people of Israel went into the land of Canaan, they crossed the Jordan River, and when they went in, it had been 500 years since God promised Abraham to give him the land and to give the people the land. Now they had, off and on, Abraham and Jacob had lived in parts of Canaan 
but they never owned any of the land. The only land they ever owned is burial sites. So the land, even though they were there periods of time, they didn't own the land. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and all the other ites, all the way through the Promised Land, they owned it. And they were an awful people for the most part. But anyway, when you look at the the book of Joshua, it's easy to read, but it's also easy to miss a lot of what God is saying because we just skim over it and it doesn't stick to us. Israel, again, had just crossed the Jordan River and um, they're facing a major obstacle with the city of Jericho. It's a fortified city. In fact, it's got double walls around it. And it would be easier to go around Jericho and go to some of these other smaller cities to get rid of the Canaanites that are living there. Because God says, I'm giving you the land, but you've got to fight. But if they do that, then they've always got an enemy at their back. And they can never be safe. So the only thing they can do is face the city of Jericho and to do what God says for them to do. So, naturally, the thing to do is to call together all your leaders and get their opinion on what the best strategy is to take the city, right? That's not what happened. Because Joshua, if you remember, at the end of chapter 5, he was in touch with this man who said he was the captain of the host of the Lord. And we found out that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus in human form before he was ever born, hundreds and hundreds of years later, in a stable in Bethlehem. And he's the one that gives the battle plan to Joshua. And starting in verse 6, reading verses 1 through 11, this is what it says. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man, straight ahead. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let the seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horn, before the ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, 
and let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth. Until the day I tell you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, is this the plan you would come up for taking the city? Walk around the city one time. Go back to your camp. Don't say a word. We'll just blow some horns. We'll do the same thing tomorrow. And then we'll do the same thing the next day. And we'll do it for seven days. And the last day, you're going to go around it seven times. And you're going to blow the horns and you're going to shout. And the walls are going to fall down. No fighting. And you'll see that not one Israelite, there's no recording of any of them dying. And the whole city is taken. Everything is captured. And you'll see that God says that you're not allowed to take anything out of this city. It's all dedicated to me. Kill everything in it. Kill the men. Kill the women. Kill the children. Kill the the oxen. Everything in it. And this is where everybody goes, oh my gosh. This has got to be, something's wrong here. How can this be God? you got to think about this. If you ever read anything about Canaanite people, you'll find out that these are the, some, some of the most wicked people you have ever read about. Everything they did is an abomination. Not only to God, but to us too. They killed babies. They actually impaled babies on their spear. Because they just didn't want them. Homosexuality was rampant. They worshipped all kinds of fertility gods. Uh, The basic god was a god named El, and he's not a whole lot of anything. You don't read much about him because his son is Baal. And Baal is the storm god. He's the god of fertility. And then Baal's sister is a warrior goddess. She's uh, she loves to destroy things and she's also extremely sexual. And these are the kind of gods and goddesses that they worship. Children massacred easily, homosexuality rampant, all kinds of sexual immorality constantly. God says they pollute the land. Kill them all. I'm giving you the land. If you don't get rid of these people, they're going to contaminate you. You're going to be just like them. And then I'll have to kill you too. Because I will not abide with the people if sin is there. 
You've got to get rid of all of them. Now, what, what, what about the babies? People say, well, why would you kill the babies? Well, there's a period of accountability. Now, I don't know what that age of accountability is. I don't know whether it's six, whether it's eight, whether it's not. I don't know what it is, but God knows. So what about the two-year-old? What about the one-year-old? The six-month-old? Everybody has got a sin nature. You're born with a sin nature. You don't have to be taught how to sin. You know how to sin because it's embedded in you. But a one-year-old has not actively sinned. They have a sin nature, but they haven't actively sinned. Now, it won't be long before, if while they're surrounded with all these sinful, gross, abominable people, they're going to be just like them. So what happens if God takes this child when he's one year old? He goes to be with God. And in God's mercy, he takes these children before they have a chance to be accountable for the gross sins they're going to do. So it's the mercy of God that he takes these children. What about the, what about the animals? You get some people that don't think anything about the children, but they're, oh, they're incensed about the animals. And, of course, that's moronic. But nevertheless, that's the way they are. But these animals had been dedicated to their gods. <coughs> They've been contaminated. God says, no way. Kill them all. Plus the fact, you take these animals that have been dedicated to these gods, and it, you're bringing sin into the camp. So God says, kill them all. So this is what they did. And he says, don't you take anything that's in there. You don't take the silver, you don't take the gold, anything. The silver and the gold you put in the treasury of God. But don't you take anything for yourself. And anything else, you just burn it along with the whole city. So this is what God says. He says, the city is under the ban. B-A-N. And everything in it belongs to the Lord. He said, keep away from things under the ban. If you take anything that's under the ban, you make the camp of Israel accursed and bring it trouble. You take anything that's in this city that's under the ban and you bring sin into the camp of Israel. So what's the ban? The ban is defined as a religious practice where those that are hostile to God are devoted or set aside to destruction. Everything in it is hostile to God. It's under the ban. It's set aside to be destroyed. I will not have it as part of my people. Everything in the city is under the ban. In Scripture, you see the ban especially associated with the Canaanite people. And it's because they are such a wicked people that God has given them hundreds of years to repent. They have refused to repent. He didn't give them a day or a month. He gave them 500 years. And they saw the things that God had done, and they said, with the exception of Rahab, we like what we're doing. We don't want, to, we don't want God. 
So this is what happens. The city is destroyed. Everything that God commands, they do. Almost. The first verse of chapter 7 says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Do you remember what Joshua had asked the captain of the host of the Lord at the very end of the chapter that we talked about last week? Joshua saw this man with a sword in his hand and he said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And this man, who was Christ, said neither. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I go. So the question that he was answering is basically neither one. He was asking Joshua, don't ask me whose side I'm on. I'm asking you, whose side are you on? God is on the side of those who are for him. Those who obey and honor him. And here, Israel is not on God's side. Because somebody in Israel has disobeyed what God said and has stolen something from the city where everything was supposed to be destroyed. This man Achan had done this. So, Israel is no longer on God's side. They've sinned, they have disobeyed him, and God will not honor a people that disobey him. He makes it very, very plain. It shouldn't be that difficult to understand. Chapter 7 tells the story of a city called Ai. And Ai was a relatively small city compared to Jericho. And it was certainly, shouldn't have been any great difficulty for Israel to take. And that's what Israel thought. Joshua sent a couple of people to spy out Ai. What do we, how, do we, how do we approach them? And they come back and say, it's no big deal. We'll just send, they said 3,000 men. We don't need to send 30,000 or more people. 3,000 to do it, they're not a big deal. And so Joshua listened to the people, and he didn't go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you say we should do? And so they go out and they attack Ai, and they get beaten. They didn't have any trouble taking Jericho because God fought for them. And if you go to a latter chapters in Joshua, you'll see where God says, I fought, I won, I did this, I brought this, I did this, all the way through it, I'm the one that did it. Not you. But now he won't fight for Israel because they sin in the camp, they've disobeyed him, they're on their own. And they're not going to win. Verses 6 through 12 in chapter 7 say this. This is when he found out 
that there was sin in the camp. God would not be for them. They had lost the battle, and he's going, God, what in the world is going on? You're our God, and we're your people. You've always gone before us. You're the one that told us to take this land. What's happened? It said, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and then they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Seems pretty plain, doesn't it? God says there are things under the ban in your midst. Meaning there's been disobedience. There are things in your camp that were supposed to be destroyed. And you cannot stand against your enemies until you take care of the problem. So the people are brought together because God tells them, some of the people I'm going to show you where the problem is. And so all this happens and by one tribe after another, one family after another, one clan after another, it's narrowed down until it's pointed out that Achan is the man that's done it. And the result is that Achan and his family are stoned to death. Totally destroyed. So what are we supposed to learn from this? First, God's holy. His word is, is precious. It's steadfast. God means what he says. It must be obeyed or the consequences are severe. Israel only conquered Jericho because the God because the Lord fought for them. And when they sinned and disobeyed God, he was not going to fight for them. And again, it's not recorded that Israel lost anybody at all, any of the fighting men, when Jericho fell. But in this case, it's recorded that 36 men from Israel were killed 
by AI. Now, 36 doesn't sound like a large number, but this is the only defeat of Israel recorded in the book of Joshua. And not only that, it's the only time, it's the only report of any Jews that were actually slain during the whole campaign in Canaan. The whole countryside, that took seven years, 36 people, the only number of people that are recorded that were killed. And the time they were killed is when they were disobedient to God. God's doing the fighting. They're just along for the ride. That's what sin does. And when confronted with his sin, Achan said... When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and Shinar is Babylon. So here you get Babylon. He found a beautiful tapestry from Babylon, and he wanted it. And 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them, and I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath it. God takes sin seriously even if we don't. You know, the Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet. And it's the root sin of all the other violations. Nothing is going to destroy us as quickly as dissatisfaction with the plan that God has for our life. If I want what you've got, it's because I think God has not been fair with me. If I like your wife, if I covet your wife, I think God should have. That's stealing. That's stealing from you. It's coveting what you've got. Everything goes back to coveting. And this is what Achan did. I saw it. It was great looking in my eyes, and I took it. And it caused him to die and his whole family to die. And it brought serious consequences to the whole nation of Israel. Nothing will destroy our lives as quickly as dissatisfaction with God's plan for our life. And one thing that's apparent in this story of Achan is that sin does not occur in isolation. It wasn't just Achan that sinned, but Israel's sin. And why would God blame Israel because of what one person did? Because Israel was one people in the Lord, and not just a collection of clans and families. God dwelt in the midst of Israel. He pitched his tent in the middle of Israel. And this made him made them his special people. God was there, and therefore the camp of Israel was holy because God abided in the camp of Israel. And anyone who disobeyed God defiled the camp. And this, de this defilement affected the relationship that they had with the Lord and with one another. 
Sin doesn't happen in isolation. It affects everybody around you. We sin in our family, it affects our whole family. We sin in the church, it affects the church. Achan sinned. He brought sin into the camp where God dwelt. And God will not dwell in the midst of sin. It affects everybody. It affected the whole camp of Israel. So Achan sinned. God said, Israel has sinned. And I will not be with them. We're one in the body of Christ. We belong to one another. Any weakness or sin in one part of the body affects the other part of the body. If you remember Rahab, she, her family shared in her deliverance from being destroyed when Jericho fell. So Rahab was saved and her whole family was saved. Sin operates the same way. Achan sin, his whole family fell. We don't operate in isolation with sin. And with the death of Achan and the repentance of Israel, God gives his plan for defeating the people of Ai. And chapter 8 tells us how Israel totally defeated Ai and how they burned the city. We won't read it all, but that's what he says. But the last part of chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, require a little bit of background to grasp how meaningful these these verses are. Verses 30 through 35. In a moment. It says, this was after Ai was defeated. It says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had yielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel, with the elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, as the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. What in the world is going on? It's generally agreed that the heart of the law 
of the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. And the heart of Deuteronomy is the list of blessings and curses in chapters 27 through 30 of Deuteronomy. And these chapters show that blessings or lack of blessings depend on obedience. First, there's a list of curses for those who disobey God. And then there's a list of blessings for those that do obey God. And then Moses this is before they enter the promised land, calls for a renewal of the covenant, the agreement that God makes with the people to choose life rather than death, choose obedience rather than disobedience, because disobedience brings death. That's the last challenge that the people of Israel heard before they went into the promised land. Now, after defeating the people of Ai, the people gather at the place Moses had commanded, two mountains. You have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they're not big mountains, but they're pretty big hills. And in between, there's this valley, and evidently it's almost like an amphitheater where you can sit there and speak and be heard for a long distance. You get six tribes at Mount Ebal and six tribes at Mount Gerizim. And Joshua stands and he repeats all that Moses says. The blessings and the curses. He read all that Moses has spoken. And the, 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 the principle here or the fact that these blessings and curses were repeated both before and after they came into the promised land shows that these blessings and curses are grounded in the character of God and they need to be reminded of what they are now that they're in the promised land before they go and conquer the rest of these cities. So it's the character of God to bless you if you're obedient. And it's the character of God to bring you trouble if you don't. Because that's what's going to happen if you disobey what God says. That naturally brings great trouble to your life. And the only way you're going to get out of it is to repent, turn from what you've done, and turn back to the Lord. Francis Schaeffer said... This explains all succeeding Jewish history, the blessings and the curses. It explains the period of the judges, the kings, the captivity under Assyria and Babylon, their return from captivity, and their final dispersion. Blessing and curses explains it all. And it also explains many of our experiences today. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. These verses also that Joshua built an altar of uncut stones on Mount Ebal and they offered sacrifices on it. And in all these stones, Joshua copied uh, the law of Moses. And what you've got here is God's solution to the problem of those who should hear the law but had not kept it. It's God's solution to the problem of sin. It's sacrifice to cover sin. 
Breaking the law is sin, and sin always brings judgment. And that judgment is death, but the sacrifices show that it's possible for an innocent victim to die in the place of the sinner. Now, that, at that time, of course, the victim was an animal. But the animal pointed toward the only truly sufficient sacrifice that there is, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's also telling us that the altar was to be of natural stone. No iron tool was to be used. Now, what does that mean? It means that you cannot add anything to what God has done. You can't use your skill to shape something because that means you're adding your work to something that God has done. And that is not acceptable because God has done it all. There's nothing you can add to bring salvation. Only Jesus. Nothing else that you can do. It's all of God. It's all of grace. And finally, the altar was constructed on Mount Ebal, which is the mountain where the curses were read from. So the message is that the altar is for sinners. You're cursed on Mount Ebal, but the altar is there where you put where you make the sacrifice, and the sacrifice removes your sin. It's not on the mountain of blessings. It's on the mountain for sinners. It's for those that acknowledge their sin and come to the place of sacrifice. It's not for the righteous, but it's for the sinners who have broken God's law. That means it's for us. A thousand years later, the Samaritans built their altar on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Ebal. And they're building, or building their altar on Mount Ebal, where the blessings were spoken, shows you see yourself as a sinner. Building your altar on Mount Gerizim shows you don't think you are. You just get the blessings. And what did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? When she said, we worship on Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, the Samaritans worship what you do not know. Which exposes her spiritual ignorance and the spiritual ignorance of everybody that's so prideful they think they don't need a sacrifice. These symbols really reveal the truth that it's just not a matter of coming to God as a sinner. That's essential, but it's not enough. You also have to come to the place of sacrifice which means we have to have somebody die for us. And then added to that are these two essential things. We have to acknowledge that there's absolutely nothing we can contribute to our salvation. It's only him. God told Israel that the land belonged to him and that he was going to give it to them as long as they obeyed him And if they disobeyed him, they were going to suffer. And the land would be taken away from them. 
This happened in Israel's history, but it's not a permanent thing. God never forsakes his people, even though sin brings punishment. The land still belongs to them, but they're going to be, have it taken away from them until they repent, they come to the Lord. At the end of his life, in chapter 24, the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua spoke these words to Israel and to us. He said, If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose yourself this day who you're going to serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are a lot of false gods in the land today, and we have to choose to. We pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word that the things that have great meaning would not just just fly over our head and not settle in our heart. Help us to understand and to do it, Lord. Lord, repentance is a, is a change of, of mind. Regeneration is a change of heart. I pray that the regeneration would truly change our heart so that we desire to love you and honor you in all we do and say and think. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.